Hello and welcome to episode 91 of the Red Zone Restricted Podcast. I'm your host David Comerford and in this episode we're going to be reacting to some of the best bits from Pep Linders' book, Intensity. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. So we're going to do something a bit different for the international break. Uh, obviously Linders released a book where he sort of takes us inside the 21-22 season where Liverpool played. Uh, 63 games and pushed for the quadruple. So I'm joined by Dan and Chloe, and we're going to just pick out some of the most interesting bits and pieces from the book, really, and talk about them. So this is going to be focused on the first half of the book because it's about 400 pages in total. So we're looking really at the first sort of 200 or so. And if the episode does well, then hopefully we can do another one looking at the second half of the book. So We'll get straight into it, really. And first of all, we're going to look at what Pep Linder said about Harvey Elliott. Um, very complimentary about him, unsurprisingly, really. But one of the things he says about Elliott is, well, it's quite a bold comparison that he makes, really. He says, there's no such thing as like for like in football, but he has some of the ingredients of Andres Iniesta and thinks I could create a midfield. And now, obviously... That was a quote that kind of did the rounds on uh, social media as well, because it is a real sort of eye-catcher, that one. But that's not the only thing he has to say about Elliot that I think is um, is noteworthy. I've got actually the book in front of me here. So he talks about meeting Elliot's dad outside the training ground and reflecting really on the first day um, that Elliot arrived at the club in 2019. And apparently at the very first instance, Klopp said to him that he's a player for the middle. So obviously Elliot had kind of come in as a winger and he died, identified straight away that he wanted him to be a midfielder in his setup. So it kind of makes sense to deal with both of those things at once. So, Dan, I'll come to you. Thoughts on the Iniesta comparison, first of all. Mm-hmm. And also thoughts on really Klopp seeing from the outset that Elliot was a midfielder because there has been maybe a bit of debate about his suitability for that role recently. Yeah, well, well, just to touch on Iniesta, thing, Iniesta outside of Liverpool, um, Iniesta is my favourite player of all time. Um, so if you've reached anywhere near those heights in my estimations, then Harvey Elliott has done something right. I just think the, the obvious ones are your Messi's and, you know, outside of Liverpool, sort of Ronaldo's of this world. But I just think Iniesta was just a genius of what he did. And just the sort of play he just loved watching. Like Thiago now, I just love to watch him play football. Um, and Iniesta could find space in any situation. And Harvey Elliott definitely has some of those attributes in terms of like his awareness of what's going on around him, his ability to shift the ball. And he is a ball-playing midfielder. And I think that stems from being a winger, being a converted winger, like obviously he was. Um, uh, listen, he, he's absolutely miles away. I make no sort of bones about it. He's, he's, he's 100 miles away from um, Andreas Iniesta right now. Um, and that's not a bad thing because he is still so young and he's still yearning and learning rather. And we're talking about a player who won everything in the game. Um, but yeah, I can see where he's coming from in terms of the attributes they both have. Um, as for central midfield, it's an interesting one. Um, I'm su- I was surprised to see that Klopp sort of seeing it on day one, if you like, obviously having signed as a winger. Um but now, when now we've seen more of him, it's actually three years today he made his debut for us as well, ironically, um, a time of recorded anyway. Um, I think pace is the big factor in all of this conversation because I'm not sure, 
when you look at our wingers, our successful wingers under Klopp, you got like obviously Sadio Mane, Louis Diaz now, Mohamed Salah, pace. They've all got rapid pace in common. Javier doesn't have that. He's more of a will jink in, will find the yard, and a more of a ball playing type. He can't run away from people in the same way. And I wonder whether that's why Klopp's kind of earmarked him as a, as a central midfielder as opposed to anything else. Um, but you are right that the thing that's going against him now is his defensive awareness, um, which he does have a lack of. But that's just because it's not his natural instinct. His natural instinct is to attack and to influence game in the final third. He doesn't want to be running backwards. And that's why we're getting Trent exposed more often and, and so on and so on. Um, but yeah, listen, I, th- I think Javier is an absolutely wonderful footballer. I think he's going to be superb for us. Um, I do think that will be in a midfield role um, because I just don't think he has the the speed required to make it on the wing. Let's put it that way. One sort of thing that's rumbling on is uh, Bellingham's interest, really. And if the system stays the same, then it's going to be Bellingham playing probably on, on the right side of the three in midfield. So what would that mean for Elliot? I think it would be interesting to see him play as a number 10. I think skill set wise, that might actually be perfect for him. I, I'm not certain about this. I think he might have played there when he was a Blackburn on loan. Uh, just in terms of finding that hybrid between, like you say, Dan, maybe not having the speed to play out wide, but also, you know, the skill set he has in terms of that vision, ability to find space, is probably quite good for, for a number 10 to have. So I think, you know, if there was a 4 2 3 one change on the horizon, then that could be something that, that sort of suits him. But yeah, definitely, I think he's a player who. You can't get lost maybe too much in thinking about the defensive side at the moment, I believe, because we've got to recognise that we have a elite talent on our hands. And I completely agree with what you're saying, Dan, about you know the awareness and the vision that he has. I think two of his, his best traits and most impressive traits for someone of his age. Um, but we'll move on now to uh, the second sort of nugget that we wanted to discuss. Um, and it's about Trent this time. So... This is, again, from the early part of the book. And he talks about a preseason chat he had uh, with Trent last summer. Um, and one of the main things he wanted to discuss was making sure that Linders and Klopp knew that he wanted to be in the captain's group straight away. Um, and he didn't want to miss out just because he was young and a bit less vocal in games than the others. So, Chloe, the reason I thought this was particularly interesting was because there's a lot of stuff now about Trent, and we've spoken about it on here before, questioning his sort of level of, of commitment, even in some courses. So that makes it particularly eye-catching, really, that he's trying to take on this leadership role. So how do you sort of see that, you know, Trent being within that captain's group, viewing himself maybe as a leader within the side? Do you think he's he's living up to that on the pitch? Uh, first of all, I think he should be in that captain's uh, tight group. I really do. He's a scouser. He's from here. He supports Liverpool. He's got something that none of these... I mean, Curtis Jones is not his level. Curtis Jones is nowhere near captaincy. He's not even near the start of 11. So we exclude him from this. Trent Alexander-Arnold is a scouser from Liverpool and knows what it means to wear the badge more than every other player on that football pitch. They all come from different backgrounds and haven't been surrounded and lived in the city and grown up with knowing what it means to A, support Liverpool and then B, wear the badge and be representative of your city. I think he's got a lot more pressure on him 
because like we can liken it to Stephen Gerrard, the amount of pressure on him because he's a scouser, but also the importance of him also being a scouser and knowing what it meant was crucial for Liverpool. He was the reason that Liverpool got to where they were. It was because Stephen Gerrard carried us a lot of the time. Um, and I think if Trent, even though we've got a really, really good group who I feel like Jürgen Klopp won't allow them not to know what it means to wear the badge, but being a scouser and being from here, you'd know it even more. There's a difference. It's like, for me, being in the city where I grew up, I'm always going to have a special type of feeling that no one else around the world will ever have with Liverpool just because I know it's my city. I've grown up and breathed it. Um, and I think it's important that he's in there because if there's anyone who, like like Nunes, has just got his massive move to Liverpool Football Club, yeah, it's boss for you, Nunes, but also you need to understand exactly what it means to play for the fans, the fans that watch you, the fans that support you. The worldwide, like the global aspect of Liverpool Football Club, you need to understand what it means to, to play for that badge and play for them, not just yourself. Um, so I think he... He deserves to be in that group because he's got it like no one else does. He's known that background like no one else does. Um, and we can look at his performances and question his dedication, all of these things. But at the end of the day, in my eyes, he is the best right back in the world and he is always going to be ridiculed. He could, I mean, he's he's broken assist records and everything. He is always going to be ridiculed because when you're that good, someone needs to pick out something to put you down. Um, it doesn't help that he's not got off to a great start, but you could say that for at least nine other players on that football pitch. In fact, you could say it for nearly the entire squad. So um, I, I just think it's important that he's in there. If he could be, I mean, we all look at Gerard. No one really thought he was he was that vocal. Or, you know, I mean, even Jordan Henderson, we look at him and look at what he's done behind the scenes, probably more than he, what, what he's done on a football pitch to help us. Um, and it, it's a case of, he might be quiet on a football pitch, but you don't know the, the the aspects that he's got behind the scenes. And I think he's a very important player just for the main fact that he knows what it means. He knows he was there as a fan. He's grew up through it all. He knows exactly what it means to every single fan in that stadium to represent the badge. Um, and hopefully when we start playing better, he will find his form again. I think everybody expects within a few years, Trent to be the captain of the club. I think once you've got the likes of Henderson, Milner, Van Dyke moving on, he, he would probably be next in line, unless there's someone I'm, I'm sort of forgetting in that. I think there are sort of, like like you say, probably different ways to lead a football team and he doesn't strike us as someone who would maybe shouting a lot on the pitch, like a Henderson would, for example, but there are definitely multiple circumstances in which leadership comes to the fore and, and that can be sort of behind the scenes away away from our vision like you say and I, I guess the other thing I say on that it, it's going to be interesting really you know Gerard spent a lot of his career having to drag a team up on his own and and Trent's come through largely in a side where you know he has been one of the best and most important players yes but also he's surrounded by world-class quality you know if there's if there's a lull um at Liverpool like Gerard had to experience then could that be the thing that actually comes to define Trent? I think that's going to be an interesting sort of feature of, of his career. But moving on to one of the players I just mentioned um, in Virgil van Dijk. And this is something that we kind of 
vaguely new already, but I, I still think it's worth discussing because it's kind of really hammers it home. So he talks, Linda talks about a conversation he had in Jürgen Klopp's kitchen um, about Virgil van Dijk. And he said, I've never seen Jürgen so determined. We have to get in Pep. It's him and nobody else. We only had a plan A. Jürgen didn't want to think about a plan B. Now, obviously, Dan, the, the resonance in terms of the midfield sort of situation uh, this year and Jude Bellingham um, is clear. So I guess just having sort of heard it there expressed in those concrete terms, what do you make of that approach? How has that approach sort of stood the test of time? Because obviously it got off to um, a very successful start, really, um, with Van Dijk. Yeah, it was interesting to hear that it was as much about sort of his mentality and the way he came across in those early meetings as it was about his obviously his ability as a footballer. Um, so that's interesting in itself, and it kind of plays into the sort sort of thing we all know about Liverpool signings. They've got to be the right personality as well, and Jurgen Klopp likes to meet these people, whether it be sort of via Zoom chat these days or whatever before he actually signs them. And I suppose Virgil van Dijk was clearly the right fit from a personality standpoint as well as, as, a, as a player. So that kind of makes a lot of sense. But it, moreover, in terms of us sort of identifying a target and sticking to them, it's it's a brilliant ploy when it comes off as brilliantly as it did do with Virgil van Dijk. So when we waited, it was the summer, wasn't it? We didn't sign a centre-half. We waited and we thought, OK, we'll muddle through with the options we've got. And then van Dijk comes in, obviously he hits the ground running in the derby and he barely puts a foot wrong, you know, up until sort of recent weeks, I suppose, in many ways, where his form has dipped a little bit, like Chloe said. Um, but that's a, we look like geniuses at that point, don't you, from a recruitment standpoint. And the club look like they've got everything under complete control. Jurgen Klopp has got the Midas touch. Everything he does is just brilliant. Um, because they waited, they got the man, and he was superb. This time around, we waited. Um, it looks, well, we all thought it was a Tua many, didn't we? But it turns out it might have been Conrad Lima instead. Uh, we identified him as a target. Didn't happen. And we didn't really have a plan B. Now, it, you look a little bit foolish in many ways when you're sort of scrambling around um, on deadline day. And you end up signing Artemelo, who could end up being decent, but it wasn't a great look from a club that's been so sort of organised in recent years and it's got its business done very quickly. There's been a couple of instances now whereby we've been left sort of desperately trying to sign someone on deadline days. Obviously, it happened um, with the central defenders um, a couple of years earlier and now this time around with midfielders so it's an interesting one um, I like I do like the fact they only or they have a set target in mind and that's the one they want and they almost want him at all costs but then if it doesn't fall through if it does, sorry, if it does fall through and it doesn't happen um, you need an alternative don't you quite frankly um, and like you say we're kind of in a similar boat it looks like with Jude Bellingham potentially um, if we don't end up getting him and there's obviously talk in a minute about other clubs being interested and there's going to be because he's he's 18 years old and he's already showing sort of world-class signs so Real Madrid, Man United, Man City, Chelsea all these football clubs are going to be interested so we even need to be sure about the fact that we're in pole position and we're going to be the ones to get him or have a plan B in mind because we can't be in a situation next May, June, July, whatever, 
whereby Bellingham's gone somewhere else and we're left sort of picking up the pieces of our transfer window again. See, that's what I think because the club put themselves with this policy under so much pressure because they make the noises the whole summer through the press and they did it with Van Dijk to a degree and they've done it with other signings as well. And they've been like, we're kind of waiting for the one that we want and it's obvious that the, who the one that they want is, it Van Dijk or Bellingham. And now if Liverpool don't get him next year and they'll probably would make an effort to, to play it down, play down the links in the time leading up to it. But if he does go to Real Madrid or he, he does go to City or Chelsea instead, then I think that's like embarrassing for the club on one level and on another level. It, it's poor strategising and, and from a sporting point of view as well. Um, it could hurt them. So, they, it's sort of a high-risk, high-reward strategy, and I think that was kind of the essence of, of what you were saying, really, Dan. And um, Obviously, people will question the wisdom of operating, but it's a case of when it does work, it's tended to, to deliver big results. But Linders also talks about his sort of own career and his own aspirations within the book, too. Um, so there's two kind of instances of that in the, in the first half of the book. So he talks about an offer that he received in September of last year uh, from a championship club that were without a manager. I'm sure it'd probably be easy to put together who that was. Um, So he was then number one candidate for the job, but he turned it down. And he also says that a little bit earlier on uh, when Mikel Arteta took over from uh, Emery as the Arsenal manager, which again, I think this uh, did the rounds on social media. Arteta actually called him and asked if he wanted to be his number two. Um, and he also said no to that. But the Arsenal one's interesting because, you know, it's kind of the same sort of position, just at a different club. But then the, the championship one sort of stands out in that, you know, it's a crack at management, which he's obviously already had in the Netherlands before coming back to Liverpool. But Chloe, we saw it, obviously Arteta work as Pep's assistant, um, achieve a lot of success at Man City, and now he's making his own name at Arsenal. Do you think that it's only a matter of time before Linders gets poached by maybe a Premier League side because they probably should be looking at him, shouldn't they? And also, do you reckon that he might be tempted to potentially buy this time, wait until 2026 is looking like, and think that he could potentially be Jürgen Klopp's successor? Well, if you're asking me now who I want in 2026, it's Pet Linders, 100%. Um... I want him to be Liverpool's next manager whenever Jürgen Klopp decides to go. Um, I think he fits the the system. He's going to obviously know the entirety of Liverpool Football Club from the bottom to the top. And I think him already turning down to... I mean, if he went with Arteta, he could have... I mean, he's already making a name for himself in terms of your Jürgen Klopp's basically understudy and you're doing as well as you've done. But... Him and Arteta, similar age, could have could have actually made something brilliant together. Um, and if he's already said no to two things, it makes you think, okay, well he's got an eye on something else then. Um, and whether that's becoming a first team manager and no one for some reasons offered him that, um, or whether it's a, a certain case of I want to continue to learn from Jurgen Klopp, um, and then potentially be the successor of him and he feels that he's going to fit into that role perfectly, then um, we don't know. I I have not read the book, so I did not know that. Um, he's had 
other links with other teams, but it is not surprising. Um, I, I just think for, for me, if, if you're asking me what I want, it's him to be Liverpool's next manager. Um, I don't want, un, unless there's someone absolutely incredible who does a potential we can get who comes out of nowhere. Um, I want Pep Linders just because I know I, I absolutely adore the lad. I think he's he's boss. Um, I think he understands the club. He just gets us once again, and that's what I want in a manager. Um, and then to obviously he's already given us much success, but um, to know that he's learned off one of the best managers um, and being the director of the study and helped us win trophies alongside him, um, I think it's really positive for Liverpool. It's just it's what he wants to do. Um, but I think if he's already said no twice, um, he might, you know, who knows? Someone might have said to Pep Linders, you, you've got a future at Liverpool being number one whenever Jürgen Klopp does decide to retire. If we can keep up this um, this kind of form and, and this ability. So, um, yeah, it's one of them of, I don't really know much because he is a case. He, he's, I've always just seen him as one of our most influential obviously, assistance in terms of, of Jürgen Klopp. And I don't think Jürgen Klopp's as good as he is without Pep Linders and vice versa. Um, but it'll be exciting to see what he does on his own, hopefully after learning many more years off Jürgen. I think there's definitely an element of of playing the long game with it, really. That that would be my sort of guess. The club are going to want to ensure as much continuity as possible, I reckon, in terms of not only, obviously, quality of performances, results, etc., but also kind of style of play, identity, things like that. I think it's going to become the new kind of Liverpool blueprint, much much like you have like someone like Johan Cruyff, for example, influencing the style of Barcelona and Ajax um, for sort of decades to come afterwards. I genuinely believe it. it is going to be that level of significance and kind of trying to recapture this bit as much as possible uh, when Klopp moves on. But we've got sort of three more um, bits to discuss from the book and one of the things he does and that's most interesting really is mention opposition players and his views on them and he talks about how one night before the Leeds game again he broke with routine and had a beer before the game because he was stressed and the thing that had stressed him out is Bernardo Silva um, and all the you know fellow staff members are basically uh, mocking him at, the, at, at this moment because they were saying he was letting his hair down but he said it hadn't just got hadn't gone out of my head that when Bernardo Silva played for City they would not lose many games and this was after he'd scored the winner um, against Leicester. So Dan, we can obviously we can look at Bernardo and and talk about how begrudgingly, given some of his um, let's say rivalry with Liverpool fans, the begrudging respect you might have for him as a footballer. But I guess the kind of the discussion it leads into is you know obviously. The, the mutual respect and fear internally, but also the, the things that, that kind of scare you most and, and worry you most as a Liverpool fan um, when you look at Man City. Because it's interesting for him to say Bernardo as opposed to a De Bruyne or, or this season, it might be a Haaland, for example. Yeah, no, 100%. I think De Bruyne and, well, like I say, Haaland this year are the two you'd point to in terms of their goal contributions, obviously Haaland especially, but De Bruyne's assists as well. But, I think for some time now, um, Bernardo Silva has been, you mentioned it there, and obviously Linda's kind of references it as well, as when he plays, they tend to win games of football. Now, Man City win a lot of games of football regardless. So 
him being there or not isn't probably sort of the main factor amongst all that. But there's no getting away from it. He is a, he is a wonderful footballer. Um, and he has a lot of attributes. For someone so sort of diminutive, he's a battler as well and he gets himself around. And he's somewhat of a nightmare to play against, actually. Um, and I suppose the biggest sort of compliment I could pay him from a, from a rivalry perspective, sort of Liverpool-Man City, um, over the last few years, is that when he was... I mean, there was talk about him potentially leaving in the summer with Barcelona sniffing round to register or attempt to register yet another player. Um, I was over the moon because I genuinely felt that even though City has signed Haaland and they look like a, a force yet again, it feels like if they lost someone as important as Bernardo Silva, that would be a huge blow to them. And for a squad that's so deep as theirs and it's just filled with quality, I honestly felt that Silva could be sort of like they lost Raheem Sterling, who you know again another one we begrudgingly have to respect for his numbers. Um, huge contributor to Man City down the years, Sterling, but just felt like he'd be easily replaced in the City side. But if they if they had have lost Silva, that would have felt bigger. It would have been on sort of a greater magnitude to them. So he is a wonderful footballer, not somebody I like. In terms of like personally, because we've all seen it, we've all seen this sort of Liverpool stuff. He gets himself involved in, and some of it's funny, some of it isn't really. Obviously, you had the um, the guard of honour as well at City, which he kind of half partook in and then walked away. So, yeah, not my cup of tea necessarily, but a wonderful footballer. Um, and yeah, in terms of sort of Linda's getting sort of overawed with him, I do get it because. We've all been frustrated with City over the past few years, I think, haven't we? Where just when you think they're done and they're down and out, even the last day of last season, suddenly they've got those players all across the pitch who can pop up and, and win a game of football. And Ilkay Gundogan probably fits into a similar mould as Silva in terms of arguably slightly underrated, but so important for what they've done and what they keep doing. Do you know, that's really interesting because it's like thinking about what we go through externally in terms of the frustration and the sort of pain, especially those games where they come back and win, is actually what's happening kind of in in the coaching staff as well and um, just kind of bemoaning the quality they have at their disposal. You know, I look at Kevin De Bruyne and I think he's sort of the ultimate big game player in the Premier League now, but certainly Bernardo. You know, you look at the 18-19 season, the 98-97.1, and 97.1, and, and last season as well. I think he gets into the team of the year both times, um, which reflects the scale of his contribution. You know, I don't think either of those City teams would have won the league without him. Definitely, even though he isn't someone who actually is a 38-game starter or anything like that, he is probably one of their most important players. Um, but for our sort of penultimate segment, I think this is probably the most interesting one certainly to me and the thing that really surprised me most in kind of the first half of the book so obviously Liverpool drew three all um, at Brentford last season um, and then I think they went to poor so, so, they, so they dropped points um, previously and they then beat Porto I think it was 5-1 uh, in the group stage away from home and Linda talks about a conversation he had with, with Milner afterwards where Milner had basically pushed for Linders to effectively change a lot of the team, you know, drop a lot of the players who'd underperformed against Brentford. And obviously Linders was kind of a, a bit of a check on that. And he said, no, we'll stick with the same 
personnel and, and try and get a reaction. Whereas Milner thought there should be plenty of alterations. But Linda's kind of looks at that as a positive thing. And he's like, um, he's thinking like a manager. That's why we can really discuss those things. So I was just surprised, Chloe, because for, for the player to be expressing that, that feels almost like out of place in a way to me. Um, but obviously Milner's very senior. So two elements really. One being, do you think that kind of thing goes on among senior players at Liverpool and top clubs where they will almost try and have a say in, in team selection beyond their own kind of fortunes? And also, what do you think it says about Milner's kind of own coaching credentials and the authority he, he possesses in the Liverpool dressing room as maybe that kind of connection between the playing staff um, and the management? Um, maybe Milner is, is doing what the fans want. Uh, there, there are certain times where I think as a fan, I've thought to myself, especially at the beginning of this, the, the start of this season, you could literally, like, I want to see a reaction, either absolutely punish them and make them sit on a bench and want to come on and make that impact and feel annoyed with themselves that they've done that or I, I want to I need you to rile them up I need them to go into that game and be angry and go into everything wanting to win every tackle wanting to win absolutely every ball he possibly can Um, as a player I don't know whether it's your I mean, it depends. We've it, It's clearly worked for us in the past. So, sure, I, I'm not too sure that a lot of managers... I mean, if someone told that to Arteta, I'm not too sure what, you, what your answer is going to be, to be honest. You might be out of the club. Um, it, it's it's a hard one because we don't know what it's like inside, in, in the back room of, of that, that club. We, don't, we just don't know. Um, he's clearly a senior player he's talked about loads and maybe he's there to give a different perspective and maybe he knows the players better than the managers in terms of like you know he he's one of them um, and maybe he knows the, the, what the managers may be missing by playing them who reacts better to what and yet that's a manager's place to, to put themselves but maybe Milner as, a, as someone who clearly is so influential on and off the pitch, maybe he has a really good relationship with them and knows what you need to, to do to get the reactions from individuals. Um, for me, it's one of them of, I'm always going to go with what Jürgen Klopp thinks because he's my manager and he's the main reason why we've got where we've got. Um, but I guess it's good for, for Milner's future career in managing. They talk about how, how much, you know, that he's, that he's most likely to be a manager in the future, so maybe maybe those reasons are why. Um, yeah, I, 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 it's one of them where I think it should be left to the manager, but it's clearly worked for us, so why not? Yeah, and I think everyone expects Milner to go into a coaching role um, after his career, and it seems like he's already pretty much um, started doing that, whether, whether he's supposed to or not. But finally, we're going to talk again about um, something Linda said about um, an opposition player. And this time, it's someone that Liverpool have been linked with pretty heavily. So, all it is, is previewing the West Ham game, which we obviously lost last season. Um, he refers to Jared Bowen as the most salad of the championship. So, I look at that and I think he views him stylistically as a pretty similar player. And that is obviously particularly intriguing because there will come a point um, where we'll have to replace Mo Salah 
So, Dan, do you think in terms of continuity with, with the style of play that Bowen could be the ideal option? Or do you think now that maybe Salah signed a new deal, has the ship potentially sailed on, on Bowen coming in and, and may, maybe we'll be looking to someone slightly younger in a few years' time? Yeah, that, it's a really interesting one. Um, the problem anyone has got here is, is replacing Mohamed Salah. Um because numbers-wise, just purely numbers-wise, we're talking sort of astronomical figures. Now, if you're going to replace someone like that, it's like the Nunes and Haaland thing we've got going on at the minute. Like, it's almost impossible to live up to those expectations. You're almost destined to fail, in inverted commas. Now, say Salah hadn't signed a new deal and did move on at the end of this summer coming, for instance, um, and we designed Bowen and say he just scored 10, 12 goals, everyone would be like, oh, yeah, but it's nowhere near Mo Salah. But in real terms, you know, those goals are OK from a winger. So it's it's a very difficult question to answer. But purely stylistically, I, I 100% get it with Bowen. Um, I think he has many of the attributes that Salah has. Um, and as lethal as Salah is in front of the goal, he does also squander chances as well. Like we see him occasionally maybe shoot because he is such a, a ruthless goal scorer, um, within himself anyway, when he should pass it. I think we've all seen stuff down the years of that. Um, and he does miss stuff as well. Um, and Jared Bowen's similar. Um, Bowen's only really come to the fore over the last 18 months, I'd say. He's had, he's had a slow start to this season. So, you know, the, sort of all the people that were willing to, all the plaudits last year he was getting, have kind of quietened down right now because he hasn't got off to the start that you might have expected. But listen, he's a left-footed player playing on the right wing. He's very quick and cuts inside, goes past people, loads of energy, like works his socks off, which I really like about him. So, so I, I 100% get it. And he, he does look like, and Jurgen Klopp himself has sort of praised him as well. He does look like a, a Liverpool ready Jurgen Klopp type signing. And, um, my only fear would be that I don't think he'll ever reach sort of anything like 25-plus goals a season. I just don't see it. I think he's very good. I just don't think he has the range of goals that Salah has in him. Um, and therefore, with Salah signed that new deal, Bowen is obviously younger. But because Salah's now here for the next two, three years, potentially even more, it's not a sign that I can see happening because I can't see him coming in to act as understudy because he's such a key player in another Premier League side right now. Um, I think by the time it comes to potentially replacing Salah, there'll be a younger, perhaps more exciting version. And Bowen may well have moved on by then himself, because if Bowen does improve this season and, it, and his career continues to move in Lupwood's trajectory, you know, there's going to be a maybe a Chelsea, because they're sort of always overgoing big changes and Ziyech and people like that aren't exactly settled and so on. Pulis, it's the same. So maybe there's a move there for him. Um, but for us, I think that that ship might have just sailed with the Salah contract. I, I think Bowen is probably one of the best players outside the big six. You know, what he did last season was amazing and, you know, out of form maybe at the start of this season, like you allude to, Dan, but don't think there's been, you know, question necessarily being asked about the quality that he possesses. I just think you are also right that, you know, he's 25 now. If Salah hadn't signed that new deal, then maybe it's something that would even have happened last summer or, or Liverpool would have explored last summer. But, you know, 
by the time Salah does go, if him being sort of 27, 28, not, doesn't tend to be the profile that Liverpool will go for. So who knows, you know, things develop quite a lot. There's going to be talents kind of, it would only just kind of breaking into the side. Now, potentially he'll be on Liverpool's radar and it could be a name that we haven't really heard yet that ends up being the one who's looked to to fill some pretty massive shoes, you'd have to say, um, as Salah's successor. But yeah, that is going to do us for this uh, international break episode. Thanks to Dan and Chloe. Um, If you're listening on Spotify, please remember to give the podcast a five-star review if you enjoyed it. Um, And if you're watching it on YouTube as well, um, like the video if you enjoyed it and please subscribe to the channel. So yeah, we'll be back later in the week to look ahead to Liverpool's first game in a long, long time against Brighton. But until then, take care.